Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is currently at this exact moment locked in my office because I'm washing a really heavy blanket right now and our washing machine is well it's it's demonstrating <laughs> why I hate washing super large blankets. But uh fun fact, another behind the scenes into the glamorous world of podcasting or at least producing Close Horse. Usually on Sundays, you know, I jump out of bed, I start working on clothes horse right away. I mean, after I study Japanese and have coffee, uh, I do laundry all day. So I'll write and record a segment, get up, do another load, hang it outside, come in, do a little bit more writing, recording. Now it's time to hang up the new load, take down the old load. So yeah, uh, pretty glamorous. Aren't you glad you heard that? <laughs> anyway, I'm not doing anything if I'm not doing seven other things at the same time. And I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 161. It's part three of, well, you'll find out. Just to, Let's just say it's part three in the series I have been doing with Alex of St. Evans, exploring the ethics of secondhand reselling. When I began my work on this, it seems, I don't know, it was probably two months ago. Actually, as I was editing my conversation with Alex, I realized I had just been getting over a pretty brutal virus, cold, fluish situation because I had to edit out a lot of coughing and nose blowing. Delicious. Um, as I started this back then, I thought at first maybe this would be one episode. Then I thought, okay, probably knowing how Alex and I like to talk, it's going to be a two-parter. After we recorded, I said, yeah, definitely a three-part series. And uh, it turns out this will be a four-part series. At the end of this episode, I'll tell you more about what that fourth episode will be and how you can participate. So please listen all the way to the end today. In this now four-episode series, we are examining the five major arguments thrown out there to argue for the unethical nature of secondhand resale. Thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people. Resellers are making tons of money from taking things that should be for low-income people. Resellers are taking all of the good stuff. Resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, resellers misrepresent what they're selling, list things at wildly inflated prices, and overall behave miserably both online and in person. <sighs> a lot to unpack there, right? So that's why we need all these episodes. In the first part of this series, we debunked the first two myths. Thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people, and resellers are making tons of money from taking things that should be for low-income people. Then in part two, we debunked two more of these myths. Resellers are taking all of the good stuff, and resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. If you have not listened to those two episodes, please go back and do that. I think it's really important to hear the whole series. I'm really proud of how it's gone so far, and I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback about it, which I super appreciate. I'm so grateful for all of Alex's time. I'm so grateful for all the messages that you all sent me to participate in this series. And anyway, please go listen to the other two. That's all I can say. <laughs> Uh, in today's episode, we will be exploring the final myth. 
resellers misrepresent what they're selling, listings at wildly inflated prices, and overall behave miserably both online and in person. What a delightful myth to debunk. (laughs) We will also explore what we think is at the root of all of this anti-reseller rhetoric that just seems to become more and more extreme with each passing day. I am not kidding when I say that yesterday someone literally told me on Instagram that by encouraging secondhand resale, I am participating in genocide. I mean, wait, what? Do you know what that word means? I didn't even respond to that person because I think sometimes when someone comes at you like that, they are in fact coming at you and not looking to start a conversation. And genocide is certainly a pretty pretty heavy accusation, <laughs> right? especially when we're talking about secondhand clothing. But it's this kind of rhetoric that we are seeing on social media, all directed towards resellers, you know, comparing them to landlords, one of the cruelest comparisons you can make in 2023, colonizers, another pretty ugly accusation, and just general accusations of stealing from poor people and being, you know, just horrible, monstrous people as a whole. One thing we never see being brought up by critics of resellers is the benefit that they are creating. And you know what? That really bothers me. I think there's this belief that resellers are only in it for the cold, hard cash, but like at at their core, don't give a fuck about the people they are serving or the environmental and social impact of reselling secondhand clothes. And it's like as if someone couldn't choose to make a living from something that they also believe has a positive impact. Isn't that kind of the goal for all of us? I mean, I think we all agree that our number one goal is winning the lottery and opening an animal sanctuary. But if we don't get to do that, isn't the ideal situation for those of us who have to work to exist, uh, wouldn't we want to do a job that also had some positive impact on the world, right? By now, you all know that I've been no contact with my mother for more than three years. And something that I struggled with as both a child slash teenager and as an adult is that my mother could never believe that I might actually be a good person, that anything I did for another person that was kind or thoughtful, she could only see as having an ulterior motive. Like even me getting good grades in school, never getting in trouble at school, To her, that was just an elaborate facade that I had created to obscure some sort of other nefarious behavior, behavior that was never really spelled out to me. I still don't know what I was up to while I was just being good at school, but my mom just couldn't accept that maybe I was okay as a person. Rather than just being proud of herself for raising a good kid, she created these narratives of duplicity and like, scamming and like evil machinations, right? And it was about anything that I did. It's an awful lot of work to just see the worst or the fictional worst in people. And I can't help but think that many of the people screaming the loudest on social media against resellers are channeling all of this energy into creating an incredibly harmful narrative about resale. Harmful to the people who sell it, harmful to the people who buy it, harmful for us, for all of us, 
once again, we're just talking about individuals selling secondhand stuff to other people. And this work does have a positive impact. The fact that money exchanges hands doesn't negate that. I get that with the state of the world, the unfair systems in which we are forced to struggle to live, they can make anything with money involved automatically feel harmful. But it's not the exchange of the goods and services for money that that is the problem, right? It's the exploitation, the waste, the greed, the cruelty of capitalism that can make the exchange of goods and services for money a problem. When done with greed and a lack of care for the world around us. Remember, The vast majority of us don't have the luxury of like quitting the capitalist economic system because we need a place to live. We need food to eat. We need health care. We need so many other things. And until we all start getting that stuff for free, we have to make money somehow. In the grand scheme of things, selling secondhand clothing seems like one of the least harmful ways to make a living. Why are we turning on resellers again? Many resellers are actually making secondhand clothing more accessible to people who don't have the privilege of time, mobility, access. They're also spreading awareness around the longevity and value of clothing. They offer an alternative to fast fashion. And I got to tell you, for a lot of their customers... This is the first time they've thought about this. This is the first time they feel comfortable buying secondhand clothing because it feels safe, feels unrisky, it feels socially acceptable, and these sellers are showing them how to do it. I get so stoked when I see resellers on Instagram, not just not just sharing photos of what they sell, which is very, very valid, right? They should be, but also saying like, Here's why you should shop secondhand. Here are facts about what fashion is doing to our planet. Here are, here's data around how much clothing is produced every year and how little it is worn. Here's why it's important for us to change. And I also get really excited when I see resellers who are showing others how to wear this stuff, you know, because for many of you who are listening right now, shopping secondhand first is, you know, it's second nature to us. We've been doing it forever, but the vast majority of people have not, and it's scary, and it's risky, and there's fear of being ridiculed or looking weird or being silently judged or loudly judged by the other people in their lives for wearing secondhand clothing. I mean, for all of us who are into secondhand clothing in a big way, There's still a massive stigma that we're working to dismantle against wearing secondhand clothing. I mean, seriously, in a society where it's shameful to wear the same dress to more than one wedding, imagine imagine the stigma against wearing something that someone else wore before you. I'm, I'm grateful that resellers are amplifying that message. You know, for all of those people who are nervous about shopping secondhand, especially on their own, who would be paralyzed to go into a thrift store, resellers offer support and guidance. They offer styling inspiration. They really 
convert these people to a secondhand first way of life. And that's a really, really big deal. Yes, this, the resellers get paid too. That's great. What a, what a great job to be able to say that you could, hopefully, we know that resellers aren't getting rich. We know that all of them aren't even making a living wage. But for those who are, to be making a living wage and having that positive impact, that's pretty incredible. Before we move on to the next thing I wanted to discuss with you, uh, let's listen to an audio message from Haley talking about her experiences as a person who has shopped secondhand her whole life and now works as a reseller. My name is Haley. I live in Brooklyn now, but I grew up impoverished in Texas. As a kid, I was always trying to hide my financial insecurity, but now I feel like I grew up poor is a statement that has to be defended, especially for resellers. And like, no one wants to do that. When I was little, I dreaded going to a birthday party because my mother couldn't afford gifts. And I just started regifting things of my own to give to my friends. I realized at like seven or eight that I could extend the life of things I owned and loved while skirting that burden of poverty. And all of my consumption habits since then have been informed by that upbringing and those early secondhand practices. I am now the most resourceful person I know. I resell to keep the money in this little microeconomy and tend to beautiful clothes that just need a little bit of help, like I did. Last fall, I did a post on Instagram exploring the privilege of access to thrift stores. Basically, I had gotten tired of comments along the lines of, I don't know why people just don't thrift instead of shopping Shein, or people who don't thrift are just lazy and reckless. Ah, gotta love the internet. It's turned us all into a bunch of mansplainers. A lot of people who have to be judgy and get the last word in and I think we're all learning to do better with that. I mean, we are still in the first century, kind of the first decade of social media, and we're all learning how to do it better, right? We're all learning the impact of the ways we communicate with one another. But this idea that people who aren't thrifting don't care or lazy or, I don't know, just like bad people or whatever, maybe just moderately bad people... It's not it's not true. And to be fair, if you've been exposed to all of this rhetoric online that only so-called poor people should be thrifting and everyone else has to go somewhere else, that somewhere else being totally unnamed. <laughs> I don't know what it is either. If you know, let me know. Well, you might assume that while you can't afford ethical brands or they don't offer your size, that it means that you aren't poor enough to shop thrift stores or you have no place being there. So yeah, you might end up shopping Shein instead. It's just another one of these harmful outcomes of this like anti-reseller rhetoric on social media is, is, wait a minute, am I having like a light bulb moment, but are like Shein and that new like Temu and I don't know, maybe even Fashion Nova, are they funding this anti-reseller rhetoric or like creating bot accounts that do it? Because... It's just so interesting how the rise of secondhand online shopping is probably dipping into their sales, right? So what an interesting coincidence that there's all this rhetoric out there. I'm just saying, like, sometimes the people, 
The person who sent me the comment about supporting secondhand resale being genocide, uh, when I looked at their profile, I thought they were a box. They only had three posts and they were weird, sexy selfies or whatever. Anyway, just something, I don't know. It's probably not true, but it just does make you wonder, right? Because it's just a little too coincidental. Anyway, this post that I did last fall exploring the privilege of access to secondhand shopping, it blew up in two different ways. On one hand, people were like, thank you. I am glad that someone is finally explaining why I don't thrift or why I only shop from ThreadUp. And then there were other people who just like exploded on me in a very toxic, not okay way. There was a commenter who just refused to believe that everyone doesn't have easy access to thrift stores. No matter how many other commenters tried to reason with her, and eventually I just blocked her and moved on because she was blowing me up all day and this was there was no conversation to be had here. Others straight up turned to bullying, like just clearly not reading the post because to them privilege is only economic. And yes, economic privilege is one type of privilege but they felt that that was the only thing I should be talking about and dismissed these other privileges that make thrifting more accessible that, spoiler alert, are also tied in to economic privilege. Ultimately, it got really ugly. I turned off comments. I turned off DMs for the weekend. I thought about quitting clothes whores, but then I rode my bike around a bunch with Dustin. I had a good weekend and I felt a lot better. That said, nothing has changed since last fall. Not everyone has access to thrift stores on their own, period. It takes a lot of time to find what you need. And if you work a lot, are a caregiver, or just have other stuff on your plate, spending an hour or two digging is not possible, right? So that's one privilege, time. As thrift stores move further away from city centers, thrifting requires access to a car or the time to take a long bus ride. So here we have access, right? Like geographical access. We have mobility here. And we once again are coming back to time. You know, I'm gonna take a second here and say that anytime I talk about this kind of stuff on social media or here on Instagram, it's because I've lived it firsthand and I see how complex it is. And if I didn't live it firsthand, other people I care about did. And so for me, when Dylan was small, we didn't have a car. I worked all the time. Um, basically, like if I wasn't working, I was taking care of Dylan or doing laundry or cleaning the house or what have you. There wasn't time for like the luxury of thrifting. There was one thrift store that we could get to on my bike in Portland. Well, no, there were two. One was the Goodwill Superstore, which was already way too expensive for us, but did have bins, just a few in the back, and that's where we would usually go. And then there was a Value Village not too far from where we lived, where we would also go, and it was a little bit more affordable. But those were both accessible via bike. Yes, I took my kid thrifting on the back of my bike. But any of the other thrift stores that were more affordable, probably had more stuff, more choice, they were all really far away and would require like two bus rides or a car, which we didn't have. The bus was way too expensive and we didn't have that kind of time. Imagine taking a two-year-old on two different buses for like an hour to go thrifting. Just, just not plausible. And that really shut off a lot of access to secondhand to me, you know? These are things that we need to think about when we talk about who is or is not shopping secondhand on their own. 
But there's more. Thrifting is also challenging if you have mobility or health issues. And if you're immunocompromised, shopping IRL during a pandemic is a very scary endeavor. If you have small children, thrifting is really hard, like all caps hard. Dylan sometimes would be down for some thrifting, but got worn out pretty fast for a really long time. You need time. Your kid or kids have to be in the right mood, not hungry, not tired. It's a very difficult window to find. It is so hard to find that time to scour the racks for something that you like that also fits you. And oh yeah, we cannot forget that it is very difficult to thrift clothes for larger people, taller people, petite people. Sure, those items are out there, but it takes even more time to find them. So if you're facing any of the other challenges that I just discussed, thrifting feels impossible. For that reason, I am super grateful for secondhand resellers because they make secondhand clothing more accessible to people who don't have the time, the mobility, the accessibility to shop secondhand IRL. Yes, the prices are higher than a thrift store, but as I mentioned in the previous episode, when we shop secondhand from a reseller, the garment is only part of what we're getting. We're also getting the service of the hunt, the cleaning, the mending, the expertise, the item literally showing up at our front door. I mean, that's a service in itself. Members of this community had a lot of thoughts about this, so let's hear a few of them. Let's get started with this audio message from Jamie. She does the majority of her secondhand shopping from resellers. Hi, Amanda. Um, I wanted to answer some of your questions from your Instagram because I shop almost exclusively secondhand um, and I do almost all of my secondhand shopping on like Vinted or sometimes Depop. Um, and the reason for this is I have a small child, so I don't really have time to like scour charity shops and thrift stores. Um, and also I like being able to search for like exactly, exactly what I want, like the brands I like, um, I like also getting like contemporary secondhand stuff. Like I like vintage, but I really like finding, you know, something that I could have bought last season or even this season secondhand, um, from a brand that I like that I know is good quality. So I like doing that from Vincent and Depop. And then also I sell on vintage. Sometimes the stuff that I buy doesn't fit, whatever doesn't work. And I sell it on. It's my favorite way to, um, to sort of consciously rehome clothes that don't work for me because, uh, instead of giving it, donating it, and then not knowing where it goes, I know I'm giving it straight to a person who will hopefully, you know, wear it, who chose it. So um, I think those platforms are really useful and I definitely get a lot of use out of them. Uh, Thank you for everything you do. So Jamie touches on the luxury of time and real talk without the access to resellers, 
she'd probably end up buying more new stuff, like brand new stuff, rather than opting for secondhand. Resellers have made secondhand shopping easier, more convenient, and therefore a just as good, if not better option for people who need clothing, right? Rather than going on Shein, which will also be super convenient, they can get it from a small business, it will come probably faster, and they know that it's a more sustainable option. I have some great thoughts from Jules, who does appreciate and utilize secondhand resellers, but also sees some issues. She says, for all my reliance on them, I have mixed feelings about resellers. The people I've had positive experiences with whose ethics and values around consumption are obvious and aligned with mine, who provide me with an opportunity to shop secondhand, are absolute gems and lifesavers. Some have even become friends. Other sellers have been less than inspiring. I find that some resellers lean hard into scarcity and other capitalist practices, teasing new clothing drops, facilitating bidding wars for in-demand items, and even using the same kind of advertising that I despise in fast fashion retailers. There's also the whole concept of browsing reseller pages and the way that they advertise new stock drops to encourage this. It's not really advocating for doing more with less or being mindful about how and why we consume and buy clothing. Pricing can also be wildly variable, and I don't know how some people make a practice out of sourcing only high-end labels and popular fast fashion brands and then charging a premium for those items, sometimes 60 to 80% of what the item costs new, especially if it's in mint condition. And I want to take a pause here from Jules' message. I don't have an answer here. Would love to hear from all of you. So Jules is saying that if the price as listed is 60 to 80% of what the item costs new, that's too much money. What is the right price? Because I think that our sense of the value of clothing is really skewed. And it seems based on conversations that I've had, comments I've read, that the average person thinks a secondhand garment should be about 10, maybe 20% of its original retail price. And I don't I don't know how I feel about that because vintage isn't that way, right? It becomes more valuable thanks to the scarcity. So what do we think the going rate should be for a secondhand item? I I don't have an answer there, right? I get that in most cases we probably don't want it to be the same price as brand new, especially if you can buy it brand new at that moment. But if it's no longer for sale out there, doesn't the original retail price kind of become irrelevant, much like with anything else that people buy? It's it's the supply versus the demand. And the lower the supply, the higher the demand, which leads to higher pricing. I don't have an answer here, but I would love to hear from all of you because there are so many thoughts out there around this. Okay, going back to Jules' message. I tend to gravitate towards sellers who source a broad spectrum of stuff, provide accurate and complete details about the garments, don't engage in bidding or similar practices, and who charge affordable and realistic secondhand prices. Because while I can absolutely afford to buy stuff at full price, I also want thrifting from resellers to be affordable and accessible to those who may struggle with time and accessibility and who don't have my financial privilege. The positive is that you really can vote with your wallet here. 
and also make a point of sharing and boosting people who follow and encourage an overall sustainable approach. You know, I will say, to be clear, there are definitely some resellers out there engaging in some dubious behaviors like price gouging, adopting a fast fashion mindset for marketing themselves, and even just being absolute scammers and jerks. But as Alex and I are going to discuss later in this episode, there are assholes in every industry. And just because the work is valuable doesn't mean everybody doing it is a paragon of virtue. So if someone sucks, don't buy from them. It's easy to correct that behavior. And in fact, it's a lot easier for us to boost and support good sellers and sort of unboost bad sellers uh, because it's we're talking about micro businesses here and our support or lack thereof has kind of like an instant impact. It's It's not the same thing as like Amazon where we need like, oh, at least a million people to get on board with us. I also just want to add here that something I've noticed less from actual individual resellers and more from the platforms, specifically Poshmark, but the other ones to a lesser extent, is that those platforms themselves use a lot of tools from the fast fashion marketing toolbox to get us to shop. Like, oh no, someone made an offer on this, better act now before you miss it, that kind of thing. Encouraging us to make our own offers, encouraging us to act now, that sense of urgency, it's called a call to action. I see those tools being used on us by the platforms as well. And sometimes with resellers, I think they're just doing what they've seen going on around them. And so if you are a reseller who's using some of these behaviors, these tools of marketing that Jules is talking about, maybe hearing about it right now will make you think about that a little bit more, that perhaps those behaviors that we've learned from fast fashion aren't great and we should move away from them. Okay, here are some more thoughts from members of the community. Jocelyn says, I do most of my shopping from online resellers on Poshmark and Facebook Marketplace. I do this for clothes for me, my husband, my children, and household items. And I do this for several reasons. I'm primarily looking for organic or at least 100% natural fibers. I'm looking to reduce our wearing of plastic, washing it, and allowing more microplastics in our homes and water, etc. And to ensure that our clothes are lasting longer without the wear of synthetic fabrics. So... It is easier for me to use specific search items and look for specific brands. I am overall trying to become more minimalist, recovering from a family of borderline hoarders, and I have two young children, so going into stores is challenging because it has to work with my schedule and I have to manage the two children, and it's more time-consuming and it's more likely that we'll end up coming home with more than if we did it online. We may also not find fabric or brands that we're looking for. I do live with a cool, trendy consignment store in my town and a church-based thrift shop that my mom helps to run. I also have a savers one town over, so I have plenty of access and I do utilize those, but primarily we use online because it is just much more efficient for us. And man, I gotta tell you, once again, hitting on some important things here. One is that time, right? Like when you have kids, when you're working, you have a family, you don't have time to just be going out for hours and coming home empty-handed. And furthermore, another thing that I love about secondhand resale online specifically is that it brings more options, right? It allows you to search for exactly what you want, which can save you time, but also once again brings that convenience and accessibility factor to the table, which often converts people who would have been buying something brand new instead. Maddie says, 
I'm so grateful for resellers who sell plus sizes. I strongly believe that their labor for the searching, sourcing, organizing, etc., should be compensated well. When people complain about a random girl on TikTok reselling thrifted items, they don't know about the huge amount of labor, time, energy, organization, financial, and communication difficulties that resellers face. Finding cool shit that might have value is the fun of the thrift, but doing this professionally is a real job. Unfortunately, capitalism works to devalue labor. Sometimes I think items are too pricey, but that just means it's not for me. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this episode with Alex. You know, I think there's a lot of concern that resellers are jacking prices up and making a killing by doing that. But the reality, and this is like very basic, actual like capitalist economics here, is that if your prices are too high, no one will buy it. And then you have to lower your prices. And if you're smart, good at what you do, you will lower your prices and keep them there, right? So if you see something listed at a foolishly high price on Poshmark or Depop or wherever, which I see all the time, I would ask you to go look and see if it's still there in a month two months, three months, has it lowered in price? Is it the same price? Because I'm going to tell you, I've been watching a few things on those platforms for three, four, five, six months now that have not moved because the prices are too high. I think we need to give shoppers a little bit more credit here that sure, resellers, like I said, some of them are assholes, just like any other industry out there. Anyone who's out there price gouging is going to learn their lesson pretty fast or they won't be working as a reseller anymore. Okay, Momina says, I realize the most ethical way to buy, if at all, is to go by myself to a thrift store and spend a few hours there. But with work, chores, and hobbies, it is hard to add another time-intensive thing to my life. Totally agreed. Once again, when it's easy and convenient for people to have a breadth of choice, and get what they need easily secondhand, they will. Like this is how we get more and more people to be wearing secondhand clothing. And platforms like ThreadUp have proven that you can't make it this big corporate enterprise. It kind of has to be like these micro businesses of resellers doing it because it's the only scale on which it works. Furthermore, if you're gonna shop at all, wouldn't you rather benefit like an actual real person? than a big-ass corporation, just saying. Okay, Erin says, I started buying from these sellers as a baby step to lowering my environmental impact. I've been a big buyer of fast fashion in the past, mostly for financial reasons, but following these sellers made me think twice about buying something new. How many times will I wear this? What do I know about the brand? Do I even like this? Or does it just look inviting because it's well-displayed? Buying secondhand has become a great way for me to make ethical purchases. It's so fun to see the styled photos, so meaningful to support small businesses, and so sincerely nice to see community over competition between sellers. Love that, Erin. And this is a great transition into the next thing I wanted to discuss today. There is so much to discuss in this episode. Anyway... (laughs) Let's talk about the community created by secondhand resellers. We're going to touch on this in my conversation with Alex today. But as I was going through everyone's messages, I was struck by this recurring theme of community, friendship, and mutual support. In fact, 
I would say there is a level of community among secondhand resellers and customers that is just incredible. It's beautiful. And it's very unlike the relationships most of us have with any of the other places that take our money every month. Anne says, I'm not super up to date on the discussion going on on the interwebs about reselling, but at the end of the day, reselling has created a community for an array of people with different financial backgrounds. This community is like therapy for many people, and it's a jumpstart point for a bunch of small businesses. I agree. When I talk about the importance of small business, of small business being the future of our future, the future of our planet and its people, Depending on a shift into small business, resellers are an integral part of that. We have seen that in many ways, the thrift store system is failing a lot of people, right? We've discussed this in the previous episodes. We already know how these other larger corporations are failing, epically failing the planet and its people. Secondhand resellers are actually these micro businesses. So when you spend your money, it has immediate impact. And it's also a service that, yes, there is a footprint of it, right? The shipping, the packaging, et cetera. But it is probably at this point some of the most ethical shopping you can do because nothing new was made and you know that people weren't exploited to get it to you. Erin of East West Shop, by the way, big fangirl moment here because I love East West Shop, one of my favorite stores in the world, definitely my favorite store in LA. Erin says, Reselling isn't easy work. It's time-consuming and back-straining work. It's dusty, and sometimes you stick your hands into some nasty things. But saving a garment from certain death has such a joy to me, and re-energizing it and helping it find a new home feels like a radical act of kindness to the earth. I think about all the energy that went into making each garment— Each saved and retreasured piece is something to celebrate. Sometimes the digging culture out here feels intense. People need to be supportive of each other and celebrate what each other has found. To me, the problem is definitely not the resellers. The problem is that fast fashion is totally taking over the secondhand market. And those goods don't have as many sellers and or the quality of the fabrics and styles are such a snapshot trend that they don't have many buyers. I love that. Really, really so eloquent, Erin. And so true that what we see reflected online in resale right now is probably, no, not even probably, definitely the majority of the best stuff being bought and sold right now, even brand new, because such a massive chunk of it, all the new stuff that people are buying every year, go to the thrift store and aren't even good enough to be sold there. Or resellers see it at rag yards, yard sales, the bins, that kind of thing. And they're pretty dubious about the value of it, right? Or it's already starting to disintegrate. How could you possibly, in good faith, sell it to someone else who's going to get very little wear out of it? You know, I said this on Instagram earlier this week. I'll just say it again. Like what you see in thrift stores is basically the mirror reflection of what people are buying right now. And if you're unhappy with what you see at the thrift store right now, you should be unhappy with what people are buying right now and be unhappy, be angry about retailers and brands making this stuff that no one wants to buy secondhand 
because it's so shitty. Be angry at them. That's where we need to focus our energy, not on sending death threats on TikTok to people who thrift and resell. When you say it out loud like that, it's just like, wait, what the hell, everybody? Why are we acting this way? Why is this happening? In our conversation, Alex and I are going to explore why we think resellers are the focus of much vitriol, but it's hard not to see that maybe, just maybe, there are a lot of people out there who might not be stoked to hear about a strong community of women, non-binary, trans, and queer people. They don't want us to be pulling together, becoming stronger and more connected. They don't like that. But that's what both the secondhand community and the slow fashion community are doing. And creating cracks in what we have, in what we build, this explosive discourse around the ethics of secondhand reselling is creating cracks that can break us into factions, that can make it easier to ignore us, easier to control us, and certainly an easy way to ensure that we don't accomplish anything. I know this sounds very extra of me to say, but why are we destroying one another and our relationships over a bunch of myths around thrift stores, secondhand, and the intentions of resellers? I'll share more of my thoughts about that at the end of this episode, but for now, I'll just say this. Deep breath. It makes me really, really angry and really, really sad that these false arguments are dividing us and preventing us from working together to make serious change in the world. That's exactly what they're doing. I know this is just a podcast and therefore its scope and power is pretty limited, but even if it could plant a tiny seed that grows into a tiny sprout of realization that motivates where someone stands on the issue, then it's a success. Because that person might tell another person who might tell another person, that would be great. Or at the very least, it's one less person leaving negative comments on someone's TikTok about thrifting. Let's take a moment to mention a new sponsor of Clothes Horse, North American Herb and Spice. A few weeks ago, I was sick from one of the wild viruses wreaking havoc on all of us this winter and early spring. You all know because I told you on Instagram. And while illnesses like colds and flus tend to linger with me for a really long time, turning into a sinus infection, bronchitis, or some other secondary infection that slows me down for weeks and makes it hard to make Clothes Horse, this time I made a fast recovery, and I think North American Herb and Spices Oregano P73 oil had a lot to do with that. I'm actually a regular user of herbal and natural remedies because I believe in the power of plants, and I've got a lot of rad smart herbalists in my life. I'm very lucky. I've actually been a big believer in oregano oil for upper respiratory infections and other minor illnesses since a friend introduced me to it about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Fun fact, it was actually a vendor that I worked with at my first buying job. I just add two drops to a little bit of water and chug it first thing in the morning. 
It's also great when mixed with a hot ginger and cayenne tea. So awesome for a sore throat. I've also used it to treat minor skin infections and bug bites, which I get a lot of, especially here in Texas. And North American Urban Spice has the highest quality oregano oil I have ever used. Oregano P73 is the original, truly wild, organic oregano oil that is produced by old-fashioned steam distillation. It is the only unprocessed, full-spectrum wild oregano oil available, and it is chemical and GMO-free. North American Urban Spice is a true American success story. Founded in a basement and told by skeptics that it could not be done, Judy K. Gray defied the odds and built a renowned and trusted brand. She believed that there had to be a better way to heal the world and that the answer lay in finding the finest ingredients, especially from the wild, and formulating them into unique products. Judy was the first to recognize the unique healing powers of P73 oregano oil and create formulations that countless consumers have used over the last 30 years. If you're interested in trying oregano P73 or any of North American Herb and Spice's other products, go check out NorthAmericanHerbAndSpice.com. They offer a wide variety of high-quality products made from ingredients sustainably sourced from around the world. I'll definitely be adding their Oregasin throat spray to my next order. And guess what? I have a special offer just for Clothes Horse listeners. Get 25% off your order with the promo code CLOTHESHORSE25. That's CLOTHESHORSE25, and I'll share that in the show notes. Okay, well, with all of that... I'm going to take a big drink of water. So let's get into the last part of my conversation with Alex. There's a lot more for us to discuss afterwards. Which brings us to myth number five. Mm -hmm. Resellers misrepresent what they're selling, list things at wildly inflated prices, and overall behave miserably both online and in person, which is this, there's just like this caricature of the reseller there this is one that i see all the time that particularly grinds <laughs> my gears so i recently saw a comment on a video and someone said once you see people literally fist fighting in a goodwill over a rolling island so they could resell your opinion might change i stopped going to goodwill after seeing things like this happening over and over money is emotional um this is not a reseller issue this is called being an asshole yeah Like this is this is like if you saw a bar fight and you were like, I'm not going to go to bars anymore because people who go to bars are always fighting. Listen, one time I was at a show and someone put a cigarette out on my head, but I haven't given up on music. Yeah, (laughs) they're just like people sucks. Like, unfortunately, there are bad people in every single industry. Mm -hmm. Resale is not immune to that. Absolutely. Um, As the industry grows, as more people like join in on participating in this, there are going to be more shitty people that choose to participate in this. Yeah, that's the thing. Like bad people are all over the place, guys. It's also interesting because so many of the issues that I see people describing actually have really specific names. 
So, you know, people who are like employing bots to buy up dozens of rare sneakers on the drop days to resell or people (laughs) who are like marking up items at a really high price or, you know, and not disclosing damage or they're saying that it's one brand and it's actually another. Those are called scammers. There is a specific name for that. That's not resellers. Like these are people that are participating in bad business practices that we actually have Mm -hmm. terms for because they're seen in every industry. And I feel like I see all of these comments about people like, I see people selling Walmart t-shirts for hundreds of dollars. And I just see this sentiment repeated so often. And I'm really confused as to why we're so fixated on this. Because first of all, I'm not necessarily seeing a lot of that. And I just like can't, are people actually selling this stuff? Like, is this that big of an issue? Okay, so this is really interesting because this is something I hear a lot too. And I definitely did get messages about like, yeah, well, I'm fine with people selling secondhand, but what about the people who get the shop the clearance racks at Target or Ross or whatever and then sell it on Poshmark at a higher price? And I'm kind of like, listen, if people are paying that price and buying it, like more power to them. If it's that ridiculous, no one's buying it. And then they won't do it anymore. And also, if there's dozens of an item on a clearance rack at a store, like that means that people didn't want it. Like that likely means that that inventory isn't going to get purchased at the Ross or the Walmart. And then what? You know, at least if someone is buying it and reselling it, then like someone's taking it and wearing it, which is better than the alternative of it just getting thrown away. And it's just so interesting because people are like, so fixated on people selling stuff for ridiculous prices but like you just can't last very long as a reseller if that is what you're doing i don't think that that makes up a large majority of what resellers are doing and it's just so interesting because you know this behavior at the end of the day it hurts other resellers more than it does anyone else yeah you know i So I received a few messages and comments about people like reselling new stuff that they bought at places like that, right? And there was Mm -hmm. a lot of fury that like these are these people are really bad. And I was like, you know, the reality of it is, is that no one's going and buying all the stuff off the Target sale rack or from Ross or what have you if they don't need money. Okay, like it's not a fun job and no one's getting rich off of it. And Dustin and I were talking about it because when we were younger, it's like one of these things that we've bonded, we bonded over on like maybe our first date um, because we're both from sort of the same part of the country. Uh, There was a chain of stores called Gabriel Brothers and it was sort of like two rungs below Ross where a lot of the stuff was damaged or you, like, needed to remove a stain. But it was all new stuff. It just, like, maybe it was mm-hmm. a regular fit or it had, like, it was missing a button or it just, like, somehow, like, maybe the truck that it was delivering it had been in an accident and then Gabriel Brothers bought the whole truck and it was, like, a whole bunch of Nikes, whatever, you know? And I would, when I was, like, super broke, I specifically remember this time period where it was, like, right after Dylan was born And I was working all the hours I could at the cafe inside Barnes & Noble, proudly serving Starbucks coffee, which meant I had literally no money, okay? You can't support a family on that. I would sometimes go to Gabriel Brothers, and if I saw, like, a brand that I knew people liked and there were a bunch of T-shirts there or something, yeah, I would 
buy them for $4 a piece and list them on eBay so that I could buy diapers or, you know, pay my bills. I never was like, oh, now I'm, wow, look at all this money I'm stacking in my bank account. And Dustin had similar stories where he'd be like, yeah, like at one point I was like sleeping on couches, couch surfing, and I really needed to be able to get the money together to make a security deposit on an apartment. But when you're making minimum wage, it's just like impossible. And he said, one time I was at Gabriel Brothers at that time, and they had all these like Nike running sneakers that I knew people were obsessed with. And I bought all of them with the last bit of money on my checking account. Mm -hmm. I sold them all on eBay, and then I could move into an apartment. And I was like, right, like people aren't getting rich off of this. It's just like living in this world is hard. Also, like... Uh, I don't, how does this differ from any business? I know. Like, is is business not buying something at one price and selling it for another price? Like, is that not literally just how retail works for every single store ever, anywhere, selling anything? Like, I don't, I'm just confused. I don't understand why, like, do, that is somehow unethical. But then, like, drop <laughs> shipping or ordering bulk off of Alibaba and selling it is, like, fine. Or even, like, Target, you know, ma- mass manufacturing stuff and then selling it at a 500% markup is okay. Right, like, I right. don't, like, what's the difference? I mean, I don't, you know, you bring up a good question there, right? That is the same as any other retailer. That's how business and, works. Right. And, you know, I might have spent my entire career as a buyer, and that is what I do, right? That is a big function of it all, is making the math work. And a few years ago, I was getting a ride from a relative of mine and their partner, and he started mansplaining to me. I mean, I was, like, at this point, like, I don't know, 10, 12 years into being a buyer. And he said to me, you know that when you go into a store and buy something, the price you pay for it isn't the price the store paid for it. Oh my God, what? (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, do you know what I do for a living? But that is the reality of it, right? That is how business works. And here's the thing, I'll tell you as a buyer, you're always trying to get the price right. You have to hit a certain margin because like that's what you're you know, your company wants you to do. And part of that is so that they can pay everybody's salaries and keep the business running. But it's also so that rich people can get rich. Fine. But you have to find, this is like the art of it, is that you can't just arbitrarily price things higher than their value is and people are going to come and buy it. That's not how it's going to work. The, the market sort of dictates the pricing to a certain extent. Even right now with like eggs being like $10 or Mm -hmm. whatever, they're able to sell at $10 because people are paying $10 for eggs. Yeah. If people said that is way too much, which many of us have, I'm just not going to eat eggs for a while. um, And everybody did that. Then the farmers who are selling these eggs would have to lower the price to sell the eggs. Right. And so if people are buying stuff, off of these sale racks and then reselling it for a higher price, either one, people are going to buy it and that's that, or two, people are not going to buy it and that's that also. Like, this is just like, it's like creating conspiracy where there's not conspiracy. And again, the they ended up on the sale rack in the first place because they weren't desirable. They didn't sell at full price. There is likely an overstock of those items to begin with. So even mm-hmm. if someone does buy up the whole rack, There could be an entire other dozen racks in the back or at the store in the next town over of that same item, dozens and dozens and dozens of them at that same price. It's just so interesting that this anti-reseller discourse, people seem to have specifically latched on to like the bad 
people within this specific industry (laughs) when it's not really something that you see in other industries as often. Like, you know, I don't see someone being like, oh, I had a really horrible, mean sixth grade teacher. So like teachers are evil. Like that's just (laughs) weird. Like that's a weird mentality. You know what I mean? Or like you go into a restaurant, you have a bad experience with a server. And so you're like, I don't like servers. That's just, no, like, that's, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. That's just not how that works. And I just see so many comments of people being like, people on this app are ripping people off and these resellers are selling stuff at crazy prices or someone told me that something was this brand and it wasn't or they sent it to me and it was stained. Like that just, th- those are just bad people. That's not a reseller problem. Right. And like the whole thing with the pricing, here's the deal. If you price it too high and no one buys it, then you have to bring the price down. If perhaps the price is not too high, if people are buying it. Also, just going to put this out there. If you're taking the stance that you don't want middle class or wealthier people in thrift stores, let them buy stuff at a higher price online if that's what they want to do. That's such another funny thing that I've thought (laughs) of is people are like, people are selling dirty old t-shirts for $400. And I'm like, if Someone can afford to buy a dirty old t-shirt for $400. Like, why are you worried about them? Seriously, spread the wealth, Yeah, I'm confused. I'm like, you want to defend. You're like, oh, you're taking stuff away from poor people at the thrift store. But then also, like, you're buying this $400. I I just, like, it seems so, like, people are very nitpicky in what they want to be angry about. And it seems like a lot of the things that people are upset about are actually conflicting ideas. Yeah. I if, mean, isn't that what we're kind of seeing here? Yeah. If if people are actually successfully selling crusty shirts for $400, like the type of person that can afford to do that is probably fine. If you have that much extra money to be spending on who knows what, then like, I'm really not that concerned about you. You're probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also the thing we need to also touch on here is that this idea that that resellers are listing at these wildly inflated prices. Let's talk about what a reseller does. Yeah. They find the product, which takes a really long time. Mm-hmm. They clean and repair it. They photograph it, style it, list it, measure it. All lot, lots and lots of work, right? Yeah. This is why if you go on ThreadUp, none of the measurements or anything make any sense because it is just too much work that like big companies can't get it right and make money. Okay, so. There's a lot of work involved. Also, like, I cannot emphasize enough what you are paying for is a service. Yep. Which is someone, like, I'm going to tell you, for all my friends who, compl- who back in, like, 2005, would complain about eBay, like, ruining thrift stores, I was ecstatic because I was like, now I can find the things that I've dreamed of or that are perfect for me or that are exactly my aesthetic that I can't find here in my local thrift stores. And all I need to do is click a button. And you know what? I will pay extra for that because I wouldn't get to see this stuff in real life. I would never find this on my own out in the wild. Like, especially definitely around 2010, I went through a really big, like, I'm Stevie Nicks phase. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you where I was living in Philadelphia, we were not finding a lot of Stevie Nicks clothes at the thrift store. Yeah. So I was like, Click, I will pay you $30 for that thing. Even though, yeah, maybe at a thrift store I could have found it for five bucks. I would have never found it, right? No, you're not going to be at that store that that person found it at. Again, in looking through thousands of items, finding that one thing, like the chances of that happening are just not there. And I also find it so interesting that so many of these comments that I see online are like, 
I just think it's ridiculous when someone buys a coat at the thrift store and sells it for a hundred bucks, finds pants at the thrift store and sells it for $40, $50. Like the prices that are typically being listed in these arguments are actually not high in terms of the real value of like high quality clothing. And I feel like a lot of these comments are coming from younger people whose, again, concept of the value of clothing has been so warped because they've grown up in a generation where fast fashion is the norm. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people now who I think have just grown up with this mentality and this idea that like clothing should be five, ten, fifteen dollars. Totally. When the reality is, is that like that's not okay. New clothing should never cost that little. And instead, we should be focusing on people being able to make money to afford clothing that is made ethically and responsibly. Mm-hmm. Like clothing should cost more, and we should all be making more money so that we can afford clothing that costs more. Absolutely. I mean, it's that same argument that people will get, like, all riled up about, about raising the minimum wage. Well, they'll be like, well, why should someone making cheeseburgers make as much money as a teacher? And I'm like, you're right. They both deserve a huge raise. Yeah. Teachers should be making a lot more money in the first place. So should people who cook our food. It's a win for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a a similar thing. So I I have some quotes here from resellers who are talking about pricing and whatnot. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, one person is, you know, I don't know. We've got, we've got two views here for the two things I'm going to read. One is from Chloe, who is finds by Chloe. She says, I think people have a hard time accepting that others should be paid for their time and labor. We want things right now for as cheap as possible. So it's easy to overlook the fact that someone is catering to you, I suppose. I source four to six days a week for no less than four hours a day. I've hit eight to 10 hour sourcing days before. You're gross, sweaty, stinky, and have dead grandma germs up your nose. It's not an easy job. The gas, time, energy, labor, snacks, meals to keep us going, shipping supplies, shipping itself, Freebies, markets, etc. It all goes into the value of what we do. At the end of the day, some girl in her story feeling beautiful in a one-of-a-kind dress I took four hours to dig for makes it all worth it. And I think, like, that's the thing. Like, if you've ever gone to the thrift store and didn't find anything, imagine if that was, like, what your livelihood depended on, okay? Um... Tamara has a slightly different view. She said, I'm also appalled at the capitalist urge which drives madness into the resale world. It saddens me how many items are bought up just to flip at a higher price. My personal code of honor is to only buy what I will be responsible for in the life of that product. I only resell items I personally value. When I find something wonderful at a thrift sale, I don't buy the whole lot. I leave some for others too. I'd love to see people be less selfish and halt their hoarding. We can all learn to appreciate every belonging we possess and leave some pickings for other folks to find. I guess it's just like, I I suppose there are people who go out there and just grab everything willy-nilly, but there are also rotten people, like we said, everywhere you go, in different any industry, in any way of life, in any community, in any movement, you know? And so, yeah, there are going to be people who go in there and just like supermarket sweep the thing and are rude. I mean, I've heard the same happening too at like... um at estate sales and stuff mm-hmm. of people like, you know, rushing in and like grabbing every single piece of clothing and then like running over to the corner and then like sorting through it after they've taken everything from <laughs> everyone else and whatever. Again, that's not resellers. That is people being disrespectful. It's people being selfish. It's just individuals acting badly. And I think it's super unfair to 
use those people as a way to vilify like an entire massive industry of people. I know. I know. I mean, it's it. Yeah, I think we probably have like broken this down enough, but I just think it's really important to decaricature the view of resellers. Once again, I just I cannot believe the amount of vitriol that is being directed towards people who all they do is sell secondhand stuff. Like, can I tell you all the other horrible things that are happening in the world? You know? (laughs) Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at salt hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play, not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. I just want to tell you the thing that really touched me most of all is that I realized there's this really strong and beautiful community that is built out of all the people doing this work who have befriended one another. Like you said, you know, like Christine is a friend of yours you've never met, who you yeah. know through this community. And it brings together predominantly women and non-binary people who would be disconnected otherwise. And I just, I think it's beautiful. I have had this conversation a lot with friends of mine about how difficult it is to make friends in adulthood. Yes. Um, it's hard to meet people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I live in New York City. I'm a bartender. So I'm like by no means living a life that is short of social interaction. I'm around other people a lot. And even then, it can be very hard to connect with people on a deeper level. It can be hard to, like, develop intimacy with people. And I found that being part of the vintage community here in New York has just opened up an entire world of friendships for me. I've met so many people who, you know, some of the people I've met are no longer even reselling anymore. And I was just happy to be able to connect with them while they were. Mm -hmm. Um, I meet so many amazing people when I do pop-ups and markets. I've connected with so many people online that, you know, don't live anywhere near me. 
Mm-hmm. And I've been able to like become friends with them through this space. And I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think that goes into some other things I know you wanted to say about this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's like transition right into that because what you and I are seeing happening around us is sort of the antithesis of this other thing that is at the core of the vilification of resellers. Yes. So, you know, you and I have really embedded ourselves into this beautiful community. Um, you have managed to actually build and create community through Clothes Horse. Um, I've connected with so many people through selling vintage, whether that be other sellers or like my customers who are now also friends of mine. And it all feels so warm and supportive. And it's so weird to think that there's this other dark side of it. I know. I know. It's, and so, you know, as I see a lot of these angry comments, angry videos, et cetera, I have spent a lot of time re- recently thinking about mm-hmm. what is it about this specific topic that is so triggering for people? Mm-hmm. Um, people are very, very angry at resellers. Like they're yeah. very upset. Very. Um, people like death threats level upset. Yeah. And so I've just really been trying to like dig into this idea of what is it specifically about this that is so upsetting to people. And I think I've touched on a couple like core ideas of why I think this is like really hitting this emotional trigger for people. So I think one big reason is something that we have already touched on, which is just the overall changes to to the secondhand market, especially in thrift stores. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this brings us back to the very beginning of our conversation about how, again, this is all cyclical. And it's so funny because this is the like, you know, we make fun of our parents and our grandparents for being like, back in my day when I was a kid. (laughs) And yet we end up falling into that same trap. I know. (laughs) And so, you know, I I understand that it's very, it's, you know, a lot of people have a long history of thrifting. They have spent their life relying on thrift stores, especially people who grew up low income. And so, you know, I understand that it, it does feel justifiable to be upset that things are changing in a way that feels out of your control. Mm-hmm. However, these changes are due to all of these reasons that we just discussed. And a lot of those issues feel so intangible and difficult to solve. And so, you know, it, it getting angry at like corporations or fast fashion or you know the textile waste stream like it just it can feel like screaming into the void and this mm-hmm. is something that you've touched on so often in clothes horse that it's really easy to get caught up in this feeling of being hopeless and mm-hmm. not having any solutions and so i think that you know it's a lot of displaced anger and it's a lot of people feeling like if i come at this one individual person if i leave this mean comment it's like a way of venting and it's a way of making me feel like i'm like doing something or making a difference yeah 100 you know it's just it's it's not right it's it doesn't solve the problem um i don't think that like it's stopping people from reselling I think it's making people continue doing what they're doing, but then feeling bad about it. Yes. And like, is that the solution? Does that like, I, I would just really like to know for people who leave these mean comments, like, is that actually what you want? Does that feel helpful and productive to have people continue doing what they're doing t- for their livelihood or because it's their passion and to just then feel guilt about it? Like that just feels so icky. You know, a few years ago on the department, we did an episode about trolling 
as a mm-hmm. trend because yeah. it, re- it really took off in 2020. Like when everybody was home alone, obviously yeah. feeling terrified and frantic, right? And, you know, the psychologists who have written about this say that when people are being horrible to someone, a stranger on the internet, it feels like a repercussionless way to get bad your bad feelings out. Yeah. And I think it's really important for everyone to take a moment and recognize that there are repercussions. And I I know all of you who are listening to this have had situations in which someone really upset you on social media and you felt upset about it for days, months. Man, I could tell you stories all day about really really unpleasant messages I have received from people while working on close horse that keep me awake at night, that scare me or make me feel horrible about myself. There are real life repercussions to behaving that way. They're repercussions. They're not positive impacts. So if you think that you are somehow making the world more equitable by just sending a reseller death threats or telling them they're monsters, Not only are you not doing anything positive for the world, you're actually having a really negative impact on a human being. Yeah. And I think that this actually touches perfectly on the next reason that I think that this has picked up so much steam recently is if you look at where a lot of this hatred is being directed, a lot of the specific content creators and resellers that are like receiving the largest brunt of a lot of this. Um, it really boils down to misogyny and mm-hmm. the patriarchy. Yep. Um, I feel like in this conversation, one of the terms that has been the most latched onto is depop girlies. Mm-hmm. Um, I see so many comments saying, you know, it's the depop girlies or we hate the depop girlies, whatever, whatever. And, you know, depop is very clearly associated with Gen Z. It's seen as being like the younger resale app. Um, girlies is very clearly a gendered term. So when you say Depop girlies, whether or not you mean it, you're talking about young women. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this really ties into something that you've also spoken about at length in the podcast in which we have long examples in our culture of devaluing interests and work that's perceived as being for women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, jobs that are women's work, quote unquote, you know, Homemaking, childcare, garment work, uh, sex work, fiber arts, these things are perceived as requiring less skill, they're less important, they're less deserving of higher wages or recognition. And this also ties into, because again, not only is resale like a career and a job for people, but it's also a passion and in many ways almost an art form for people who, you know, love and mm-hmm. live clothing and fashion and vintage. And Again, art forms and entertainment or hobbies that are associated with women are considered less serious, less deserving of respect, or less valuable. You know, whether that be pop music or reality TV or fashion or makeup. And resale, as we've pointed out in this episode, has been around for such a long time. And until more recently, it was overwhelmingly a male industry. Yes, that is so important to call out. I was actually talking about that with Christine last night. I said, you know, even in the 90s and the early aughts, the people I knew, like in Portland specifically, who were kind of running the vintage scene there were all men. Yes. And if you look at a lot of the longer, more established sellers within the community, especially when you're at like flea markets, 
Um, if you go to like rag houses and like different, you know, companies that most of them are being run and managed by men, they've been in the industry for a very long time. And so I don't think that it is a coincidence at all that as this industry opens up and allows in more women, more non-binary people, more people of color, other marginalized communities that you're seeing this increase in like shame and anger directed Mm -hmm. towards the people participating. And it's so interesting because you're seeing so much of the conversation happening on social media and on social media, you know, there's obviously biases baked into these platforms. And so the sellers that are most likely to have like a large audience and be pushed by algorithms are going to be women who are young, thin, conventionally attractive. And a lot of times those things are now being associated with like resale as a whole because that's what people are seeing. Mm -hmm. So just because you see young, thin, white women on TikTok or Instagram, that doesn't necessarily mean that represents the whole of what the resale industry looks like. And so I think, again, it's so easy for people to fall into these patterns of misogyny. And a lot of it, unfortunately, is internalized misogyny coming from other women. And, you know, it's now created this idea that resale is something that, like, young, cute, privileged girls are doing. And it makes it, for whatever reason, easier for people to, like, dismiss it as something that's not deserving Mm -hmm. of value or that it's okay to shame and talk down on. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I, I have had multiple conversations in the past few weeks with different resellers, many of whom who have been doing it for well more than a decade, talking about how there is, even if we go onto social media and we look at the male resellers, which there are far fewer of them at this point, but if we go onto their Instagram feeds and we look at the kind of comments they're getting versus the women who are selling, it is Mm -hmm. night and day. Uh, Go onto a male resellers page and it's like, you're the goat, brands are copying you because you're so good and like stuff like that. And you go on to a woman's page and it's like, you're a monster. You're stealing, you're stealing from yeah, people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I do think like, listen, no matter what your gender is, a lot of us have internalized misogyny that we need to unpack. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that that definitely has played into a big part of the current conversation that's happening, particularly on social media. And I feel like, again, this latching on to this Depop girly thing. I keep seeing Depop girlies, Uh. Depop girlies. Like, and it's just, I don't think that it's a coincidence that we've decided to make villains out of young women, you know, in this circumstance, which as we've clearly pointed out throughout this episode, that the villains are not individuals here. It's the systems. It's the corporations. It's our culture and our society. It's so much bigger than like individual people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's great about our culture, and I mean this in the most deeply sarcastic way ever, is that we've really made a proud tradition generation after generation out of villainizing young women. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, for their sexuality, for how they dress, what their bodies are like, um, the choices they make, and now, you know, reselling. But also listening to Taylor Swift or uh, liking reality television or, you know, wearing skinny jeans. I have no idea. People don't wear yeah. skinny jeans anymore. Anyway, <laughs> uh, just v- always picking apart what they like. I mean, I remember it was like very fashionable like two years ago to dismiss 
interest in true crime. And it was like, oh, interesting, because like that's a predominantly like female audience. Good job, guys. Yeah, it's very um, it's very interesting and unsurprising. I think yeah. that we've seen this specific targeted shift towards blaming young women in the industry for all of these other big major societal issues. Yeah. Um, another reason that I think this is so triggering for people is that it sucks to be bad at things. <laughs> You're telling um, me. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel good. No one likes to be bad at stuff. It's a bummer to try and do something and not be great at it. And I think that there are a lot of people who go into the thrift store and they leave empty handed and they feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, I think this is exacerbated by this increased content that you're seeing online around resale. There are so many accounts and so many content creators that you see finding all of this amazing stuff. And so if every time you get online, you see these, again, young women that are like, look at all this amazing stuff I found. And then you try and you don't find anything, then like you naturally feel left out. You feel inadequate. You're like, what's going on here? Why am I not able to find all this great stuff that other people are finding. And instead of acknowledging that, you know, there are so many other factors at play here, whether it be maybe you're just not in a good location, you know, maybe the person that is shopping is like in a different place than you or they're going to different sources than you are. But also like it, it is a skill and it's much easier to blame other people and just be like, well, I didn't find anything because the resellers already took it. Or to give up completely and just take a defeatist attitude of being like, well, I could have gone into the thrift store and found all that cool stuff, but I'm not going to do it because I'm a good person, unlike you. Yeah, I mean, like, once again, the irony of this whole thing is that I have been hearing this kind of statement my entire adult life. And 20 years ago, it was because people were reselling on eBay and they ruined thrift shopping and they took all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you heard someone say eBay, they'd probably be like, what, did you travel through time? <laughs> but that was the thing then, or it was like all these vintage sellers who like sell at like the flea are, are stealing all the good stuff. And now we've just shifted into like, it's people selling on Depop. None of this is real. <laughs> I mean, and it's so funny because I feel like I see a lot of this sentiment of like, you know, people diminishing the skill and the labor of reselling being like, well, anyone could do that. And I find it very similar to the people who go to a museum and they stand in front of like a Pollock or a Rothko and they're like, anyone could do that. I could have made that. And it's like, okay, could anyone put paint on a canvas? Yeah, absolutely. Can you do it in a way that's worth millions of dollars and then gets hung up in the MoMA? I don't know. You tell me. Right. You know, if becoming successful in a field, whether it be artists or reselling, if it's so easy and you can everyone's making bank doing it, then like why aren't why aren't you doing it? Yeah, if it, it's, it's that easy. It, you know, I feel yeah. like people are using this false moral high ground to justify the fact that they are unable or unwilling to do this work themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. It does take skill, and not everyone will be good at it. And honestly, that's okay. If you try thrifting, or if you used to be really good at thrifting and you now find it much more difficult to find stuff because of all the reasons that we've discussed before, and you feel super sad and you feel left out, then you have even more reason to be supporting resellers. Like, instead of sitting around feeling like bummed out, like, I suck at thrifting, I can't find anything, blah, 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 just 
pay people for the labor, pay people who have the skill and you just spend a little bit more money and then you can have all the cool stuff too. We can all have it. There's enough cool stuff to go around. Yeah. I mean, this is a term I use often when describing this feeling that people are having and it's it's sour grapes, right? Yeah. It's that feeling of like, why did it go so badly for me? I'm kind of jealous. But I've never gone thrifting and not found anything and been like, oh, it's someone else's fault. I've just been like, well, that's that's the, that's the name of the game. It's the luck of the draw in many ways because it's uncontrollable what's going to show up there. It's also so funny that like there are clearly like hundreds of thousands of resellers, right? You go on all these platforms and there's like a million things that you could buy. And so like they're, the resellers are taking all the stuff, so there's nothing left. And yet there's more and more resellers that have more and more stuff. So like, I just like, how does that make sense? If they're taking all the stuff, where are the other resellers getting this Well, stuff? then why isn't the thrift store empty? Yeah, like, oh, th- that reseller took all the good stuff yesterday, but then the reseller that posts their great haul tomorrow, what, how, is that, how does that work? I would like someone to explain that to me. I mean, it's just a testimony to how much we've all been over-consuming clothes for a really long time. Yeah. But we didn't run out of stuff if, people, if we're able to support this many resellers. And the thrift stores aren't empty, and the yeah. vintage stores aren't empty, nope. and the and Buffalo Exchange is near empty. being empty. There yeah. is like, yeah. And so I think the last reason that this conversation is so sensitive for people and so upsetting is that I think a lot of people just feel really sad about like the state of the world right now. I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of people feel really sad about their lives and their circumstances. Um, which, you know, I get that it makes a lot of sense. There is a lot of hardship in the world. Things have been very difficult for people for a lot of different reasons, especially in recent years. And I think that when people are struggling and you're seeing all these injustices, it can be really difficult to see other people thriving. It can be difficult to see people taking risks that you might not be able to take yourself. Um, cause that's the thing is that resell is a huge risk. Um, Mm -hmm. It is an industry that's a risk. Uh, Choosing to do it is a risk. You are buying something that you might never sell. Um, You're also spending a lot of time and money on labor that you may not be compensated for. And a lot of people don't have the time or the money or the ability to take these risks. And so I think that a lot of times when someone sees someone out there that chooses to set on this path, they create their own business, they set their own hours, like it makes them feel really sad because they don't feel like those options are available to them. And those feelings are really valid, but those are those are cultural issues. Those are issues in our society. They're not because of the person who has chosen to take that path that, you know, isn't open to you or that you can't take. And I feel like so much of the external perception of retail is also, again, comes down to what you see on social media. You're getting the fun parts. You're getting people showing like the cool, fun, awesome stuff they found. They're enthusiastic. They're excited. They're not showing you like the crusty tissue they pulled out of the pocket. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, you're very rarely seeing like the grimy bath water from soaking those pants for a week. You're just seeing the cool pants at the end of that process. And so You see people who are so happy and they're so excited and they're talking about how much they love the job that they've chosen for themselves. They're sharing their personal success, their success finding stuff at the store. And that can be really hard to hear when 
you feel exploited, you don't like your job, you're struggling to get by. Like you said, it's, you know, it's sour grapes, but it's also just, again, there are so many issues in our society now, and it feels sometimes like putting that on someone else makes you feel better, I guess, yeah. in a way that doesn't solve any problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, listen, it's totally normal and understandable to feel frustrated, anxious, angry, afraid, hopeless, fearful, all of these things. I mean, I feel all of these feelings every day, you know? And I just think, I don't just think, I know that channeling them into being angry at resellers isn't going to make any of those feelings better. No. And also, like we've said many times in this conversation, like a lot of these resellers are also struggling with the same things you may not be. They're just not discussing it. Um, you know, they're not discussing it on their resale platform because it's not part of their brand. But like, you know, I am a bartender. I've been bartending for almost 13 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say I particularly enjoy doing it anymore. <laughs> I I'm really, really tired of hospitality, um, Mm -hmm. both like physically and emotionally. I find it so taxing now and just like difficult to do. And I don't make enough money reselling to stop bartending. Right. So that's just like the reality of my situation, which is fine. Like I do feel very lucky to, you know, be able to manage multiple jobs and to be able to do this for myself. But I just feel like so much of that can weigh down on you and make you feel like someone else is living this great, perfect life just because that's what you see online. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? The grass is always greener, as they say. And there have definitely been times. I mean, while I am good at what I have done as a career, I mostly hate it and it's really stressful and doesn't bring me a lot of happiness or satisfaction. And there have been so many times over the years I've looked at my friends who have their own boutiques or are vintage sellers or just traveling around doing stuff that seems so much cooler than what I'm doing. And I have felt that 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 pain, that sort of loss, that recogni- recognition of the unfairness of life. But I'm not going to be like blowing them up with angry texts. You know? No, it's and again, it's so normal and so valid to feel that way. And yeah. I understand the reasons why people have these feelings, but I just wish that people could take a step back and when they do find themselves feeling that way, maybe just reassessing like, is there a way that I can look at this reseller and feel inspired by them? Yeah. If I can, you know, feed off of that happy, excited energy and like use that to my benefit and think of ways that I can somehow channel that energy or, you know, I, I just feel like there are more productive ways than telling the reseller that you hope that they get hit by a bus. Like, why? Why? Why is that? Why? Why is that what we're doing? Why does it always have to go to death threats, people? <laughs> I don't know. And even not just death threats, but like people that are like, you're stealing from people yeah. and you're, I don't know. It just, uh, I just, that's just not the way forward. It's not productive for anyone. And again, these feelings make a lot of sense and I get where they're coming from, but I just wish that there was a healthier way that we could all manage them. Absolutely. I mean, it just doesn't make it doesn't make things better. It doesn't yeah. change anything. One thing I did forget to say at the beginning of our conversation, um, when we were talking about like why I wanted to do this episode, um, I was thinking about how you have probably covered every topic 
that we talked about today in Clothes Horse already, mm-hmm. but like sprinkled throughout so many different episodes. <laughs> and I was like, man, you know, Amanda's really tackled most of this. Mm-hmm. You've been so thorough, especially when it comes to secondhand textile waste, et cetera. And I was like, you know, it would be really great to create these episodes so that everything was kind of cohesive and in one place. And I don't think that the clothes horse listener is the anti-reseller angry commenter. Like, I feel like there's not really overlap there. Mm -hmm. So my hope with this is that these episodes will be a resource that could maybe be handed on to someone that is willing to, like, learn and listen. Mm -hmm. Um, So if there is someone who, you know, has a friend who expresses these sentiments and is like open to maybe having their mind changed that they could listen to this and have it all in one place and kind of really understand what's going on here. And also, I think that there are a lot of people who are very supportive of resellers, you know, are upset about this conversation that's happening, but maybe don't have a way to articulate or don't have a rebuttal for a lot of these common misconceptions that you see. So it's just, you know, this is a way for us to productively and cohesively kind of give people the information moving forward so that when this conversation does come up with friends, acquaintances, coworkers, you know, and someone says, resellers are taking all the good stuff, someone can actually be like, actually, Here's some more information. Um, you know, here's some resources if you want to read more. And then here are also some awesome episodes of Closed Horse that you can listen to <laughs> if you want to really get into it. Well, I really hope that that's what happens because I will say I receive messages on the daily that are like, why are thrift store prices higher? Why is it this? Why is it that? And I'm like, oh my God, guys, I covered this so many times. So hopefully, because we still do get a lot of people in the community who are like, I hate podcasts. So I'm never going to listen to your podcast. Maybe this will be like the one time they can do it. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope so too. Because I do think that there's just a fundamental, it's kind of like a wave of misinformation about this. And it's like of all the other misinformation that we need to battle in this world, this one's kind of the easiest one. Yeah, it's easy. And I also just think that like it seems silly i guess to a lot of people or unimportant because they're not necessarily affected by it Mm -hmm. um you know it's easy to leave these angry comments and be like whatever but again this is people's livelihood this is people's lives it's their passions it's their careers um and it is something that i think is a fundamental aspect of a circular economy it's a fundamental aspect of keeping clothing in circularity of saving valuable garments from being destroyed And I think resellers are doing an enormous service and they're providing a labor that's really important, like in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's just something that really needs to be protected and it deserves respect. You know, whether or not it's something that I was personally doing, it is something that I think just deserves a lot more respect than it's getting. Absolutely. And like you really touched on it there. Like this is the future of the circular economy. Yeah. Our planet our people, our future, future generations rely on us shifting to a more circular economy. What we really need is like three times as many resellers. Yes, and more resellers, more people shopping at the thrift. Exactly, exactly. Like more of all of it. More of all of it. So for me, it's like anything I can do to help that grow is so important to me. I've never been a reseller. I don't plan on being a reseller. 
but I see how important this is to our future. Yeah, I just don't think there's no way to move forward without more of it. We can't just continue to consume new stuff. It just isn't possible. Yeah. And yeah, we just need to keep moving and yeah, more resellers, more people shopping at the thrift store for themselves and for others. Um, let's spread the wealth and save all of the good stuff that's already out there because there is so much of it. There is so much of it. Thank you so much, Alex. I can't believe we've been recording for three and a half hours. Oh my God, I know. Alex was just texting me. He's like, hello, are you alive? Are you I still recording? you are like one of three couples I know where both people have the same name. That's so funny. I love it. Yes. I, anyway, yes, Alex um, and Alex. Yes. So thank you so much, Alex. I'm just like looking yes. at this and I'm like, oh my God, there's still so much more. These are going to be some chunky episodes. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love 
and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All the thanks to Alex for literally spending three and a half hours talking to me about this topic. We could have talked for a lot longer. It was really, really hard for us to stop, but neither of us had stood up or used a bathroom for that entire time. And to be honest, there's something going on with my desk chair these days that is making my butt hurt when I sit for too long. So anyway, we had to cut it off. We, like I said, we could have gone on for hours longer. We were just so engrossed in this. This is something we're both so passionate about. And there's so much, there's so much to dissect. If you aren't following Alex on Instagram yet, now is a good time to finally do that. Seriously, why have you been waiting? You'll find her as at where underscore saint dot evens on Instagram. Don't worry, I'm going to share that in the show notes. And you can check out her store at wheresaintevens.com. I hope that Alex comes back again to discuss all things secondhand because she is an amazing and always well-prepared guest, so articulate, so thoughtful, so incredible. I feel very lucky to know such an incredible person, and I'm so glad all of you are getting to know her too. Thank you again, Alex. In 
all of the conversations we have been having about thrift stores, secondhand resale, and the sheer volume of clothing in this world, we have barely touched on one other factor that is having a major impact on our planet, its people, and guess what? Thrift stores. You know, the fashion industry is producing about 45 billion garments each year that will never be sold. It produces 150 billion garments each year in total, and 30% of them will never be sold. So you do the math there. Don't worry. I already did it for you. 30% of 150 billion is 45 billion. That's where that number comes from. And when you dissect that 45 billion number, I don't know, it becomes even scarier. Like, I can't even begin to imagine what 45 billion garments piled up looks like. It's a mountain for sure, but like, how high is it, right? Are we talking like the gentle slope of the Appalachian Mountains? Are we talking some like really craggy, snow-capped mountain of of the Rockies? Or are we like straight up, we're like, oh, this is like Mount Everest? I don't know. Scary, right? And furthermore... There are slightly less than 8 billion people on the planet right now, yet this industry is churning out 150 billion garments every year. There's just too much clothing. The industry is knowingly churning out all of this stuff that is extreme near future garbage, some of it like instant garbage because no one will ever buy it. I actually read a quote this week in a Financial Times article from early in the pandemic called, What will happen to all the unsold clothes? And nothing in it really surprised me. It's a lot of stuff I already knew. But one of the people quoted in the article is Fionala Shannon, the executive director of Dressed for Success, which is like a charity that helps people get clothes to wear to like job interviews, work things. And she said something that has stuck with me all week. She said, There's enough fashion in the world to clothe six generations of the world's population. It's a disgrace. I've been thinking of that statement over and over again since I read it because you know what? It is a disgrace. This overproduction, which, by the way, the industry totally plans for and the business model of fast fashion makes it work financially, this overproduction is caused by several factors. First, brands, retailers, they buy into the wrong trends. They buy the wrong product. The fast fashion model relies on selling you as much stuff as possible as often as possible. And this means showing you a steady stream of new stuff. In order to do that, They have to buy into every single trend, no matter how unwearable, short-lived, or ultimately unpopular. Trust me, in my career, we have bought into some micro-trends where I'm like, wow, wow, why do we do that? I mean, lots, lots and lots of them. This results in a lot of stuff that no one really wants, or the window of time in which they wanted it was so brief that they didn't even buy it in the first place. You know, it's that time of year again. Everybody's posting about Coachella. And when I think about unbought stuff, festival comes to mind in such a big way because at some of the places I've worked, we would buy into it, buy into it in a pretty big way. People would buy a lot of this stuff, maybe wear it once at best, 
and, you know, immediately donate it or trash it afterwards. People definitely think of festival clothing as disposable, even though we know it's not disposable. But the thing about festival clothing is it's it's always pretty wild and costumey and not necessarily useful for a lot of other situations. And so we would buy really heavily into all this impractical clothing. You know, people would buy a lot of it, but there would still be a lot left over. And the moment the festival season was over, this product needed to be practically given away, right? It just wasn't valuable to people anymore. I mean, that's just only one thing that retailers are buying into that becomes like very instant garbage. But it's a very timely example, right? Another thing that leads to all this overproduction is that all the product is just coming too fast. You know, in the early days of fast fashion, all the retailers were like, okay, we're just going to like offer you the lowest prices. But then everybody raced to the bottom. Being the cheapest no longer was the fast track to your wallet. And so now it was about delivering the trends before anybody else. Once again, no matter how silly this trend was, like if you had it first, you would be most likely to sell it. That means these retailers are moving so fast to get it to you. This means like less fittings for these garments. You know, the fit isn't great. Less sample reviews, meaning there's less time to get the details right. And this fast turnaround means that no one gets to fine tune and optimize the final product. Early in my career, we would start working on products three to six months before they were actually in stores. And that meant so many sample reviews, fittings, just constantly trying to get it better and better and better. And in my last fashion job, sometimes we would just approve a photo and it would go into production, which led to a lot of really disappointing product hitting the store because we'd never actually seen and touched the garment in real life. Wild, so gross. You know, the other thing is like with this constant trend cycle being sped up and the problem, the product coming so fast, is that the amount of times companies are allotting to sell this stuff is shrinking. They need to move it in and out as fast as possible to make room for the next round of super trendy product, which means that items go on sale about six weeks after they arrive in stores or online. Best-selling styles might stay at full price a little longer, but I will tell you, in the first few years of my career, usually we would expect a style to be at full price for at least three months, if not four to five, unless there was a major issue or it was just like such a bomb. So this is a major shift in how long product sticks around to go from like 10 to 12 weeks to, you know six weeks. I mean, that's cutting its life cycle in half. Another reason, and this is actually kind of in a weird way that might surprise you, it's like less glamorous, but this is probably the biggest cause of all this overproduction, all this waste of clothing, is delusional sales plans that excite shareholders and fund executive bonuses. Although this is something I've also experienced working in the startup realm, because delusional sales plans, meaning like, just like, oh, we're going to sell like $100 million worth of stuff this year, even though the most we've ever sold is, you know, like 50 million, we're just going to double sales in one year. Sounds wild. Uh, That's the kind of stuff that gets investors excited, right? So it's all about creating a story here. The problem is that that story doesn't always work out. 
and it has major repercussions. Here's some basic retail math for you. The higher the sales plan, the more product the company needs to produce and buy to sell. So if leadership creates a super high, most likely unachievable sales plan, buying and design will go out and create enough product to hit that sales plan. When the company inevitably misses that delusional sales plan, there's a ton of extra inventory that goes unsold. And this is this is one that can drive companies out of business. Next, I mean, real talk, retailers view their product as disposable. I mean, the sheer number of people I've worked with over the years in buying and design who wouldn't touch the product we were buying and designing with a 10-foot pole Well, it's almost everybody I worked with. Like I had one boss who called it cheapo creepo and was grossed out yet by it, but had no problem working on it and cashing the paycheck, right? We know, all of us here in the closed horse community, know that nothing is disposable. But in the view of most retailers, this stuff is so cheap, it's so easy to destroy, it's really no big deal for them if they make too much. And they don't view it as an important loss. They need to keep this product from building up in their stores and warehouses because there's always a ton more on the way. So why not just toss it all out? Companies aren't looking at these items as the result of hard, skilled work. They don't see the value in the natural resources used to make all these unwanted clothes. It's just all the same to them. And it's just another line on the balance sheet that you just move to somewhere else and then you keep moving on. The industry deals with this overproduction. Well, let's just call it what it really is, egregious waste. The industry deals with this in various ways. One is straight up sending it to the incinerator or the landfill. And then these items never even make their way to the stores or onto the website. The general public never even knows about it. The other two ways the industry deals with this are actually having a major impact on the thrift industry and what we see for sale in thrift stores. First, retailers often opt to mark their undesirable product to the lowest price in an escalating series of discounts until customers buy it, often impulsively. In fact, a third of the clothes made every year are sold on sale. So when you think about that, if like 30% is sold on sale, 30% is never going to be worn, that's 60%, so less than half the clothes made every year sell at full price and are worn by someone, theoretically, right? I mean, they may also be unworn, but pretty depressing to think about, especially when you know what goes into making all of it. So the stuff all gets marked down cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and then people buy it, right? Because it's like such a good deal they can't resist, even if they didn't want it before. These are the items that make their way to the donation bins the fastest, with like the least amount of use or wear. And yes, these, strangely enough, are the items that many thrift stores prioritize getting onto the racks because they're on trend. They're often like pretty new in terms of like the timeline of their existence. And they're in near perfect condition if they've been worn at all. Second, retailers are donating this unsold inventory to thrift stores. And I know you've all seen this play out whether it's Zara or Target or H&M, this stuff is brand new with tags in our thrift stores, sometimes in a really big way. Retailers love this because it saves them the cost of disposal 
and they also get a sweet tax write-off out of it. It's a win for them, and it's pretty low effort. Gosh, in some situations, the thrift store will come and pick up the stuff. They don't even have to pay someone to drive it to the donation center. Thrift stores, of course, give this stuff priority space on the floor because it is literally brand new, and they assume that this is what their customers want. And maybe some do, others do not, right? What this means is that good secondhand stuff never makes its way onto the sales floor because there's only limited space, right? And the volume of stuff coming in is just so high. And so instead, it is bailed up and then either shredded or added to the global secondhand garment trade. If you're unhappy with what you're finding in the thrift stores these days, once again, one of the major causes is the fast fashionification of the way fashion does business. We have a lot of stuff there that people didn't really like, that people didn't even like enough to try to resell on their own or wear themselves. We have stuff that retailers are just dumping there. I mean, what we see at the thrift store is always a mirror reflection of what people are really buying, what's being made at this time. And unfortunately, that reflection is looking a little not so great right now. So this is another dysfunctional piece of the system, right? Well, we've spent the last three episodes dismantling the myths around resale, thrift stores, and the state of secondhand. Resellers have been blamed for issues around access, price, and availability. But during this series, we've learned that many of the problems are actually larger systemic issues. These problems are fixable, but they will require change from shoppers, the people who donate, resellers, retailers, and the thrift system. Well, at the top of this episode, I told you this series is now having a fourth installment. So let me tell you more about that and how you, yes you, can help. In that episode, coming next week, I will be asking, how can the secondhand system be more fair and more accessible, while also less wasteful? How can it be more equitable, meaning fair, for everyone involved? Yep, these are not easy questions to answer, but I have definitely learned a lot over the past month, and I have some thoughts. I bet you have some thoughts, too. So here are the big questions. How do thrift store prices return to a more accessible level? Once again, we thought that resellers were to blame for that, but it turns out it's the perfect blend of excessive donations and thrift stores wanting to get maximum bang out of everything that they put on their sales floor, right? How do the selling platforms make resale more financially equitable for resellers? What we learned is a lot of these platforms are taking anywhere from 10 to 30% of the selling price, which doesn't leave a lot for resellers, especially if they're trying to pay for their labor and the product itself. What that does, it kind of forces prices higher or it forces resellers to not even make minimum wage for their work. How do we get more people shopping secondhand while also ensuring access and affordability for lower income shoppers? This is a big one because, you know, the rumor out there, the myth is that the gentrification of thrifting, all of that in quotes there, 
is ruining thrift stores for people who really need them. But the reality is we need everybody shopping secondhand as often as possible. So how do we ensure access for everyone? Next, how do we ensure that less clothing ends up in landfills all over the world? You know, only about 10 to 20% of the stuff that we donate gets bought again and reworn here locally or even in our country because a lot of the stuff ends up being shredded, downcycled, goes to the landfill, or heads overseas where it becomes someone else's problem. Very few of these garments are actually worn again. How do we change that? How do we make shopping secondhand more accessible to people who want to participate but are limited by the privileges of time, access, geography, size, income, all, all the things. I want to hear your thoughts on one or all of these questions. You tell me. You can either share your story and thoughts via email. That's amanda at closehorse.world. Naturally, that will be in the show notes. Or you can record a voice memo and send it to that email address. The deadline is next Friday. I know this is a little bit of a fast turnaround, 421, and late submissions will not be considered, so don't procrastinate because guess what? After I hear from all of you, I have to actually assemble that episode next weekend. Well, it's time for us to finish up this very long episode, so I'll just ask the question again. Why do we tend to turn on one another rather than the larger systems that are truly responsible? The painful and infuriating and devastating reality is that more of us are struggling than not. Things like housing, healthcare, education, food, bodily autonomy, like yes, owning what happens to your body, and even moments of joy should not be a privilege, yet they are right now. It's, it, it is a very scary time to be alive. Rather than raging against resellers, we should be fighting for change in the systems of oppression that are widening wealth inequality, destroying our planet, and preventing people from living long, healthy, and fulfilling lives. What a remarkable waste of energy and passion and collaboration and community, all so we can squabble on social media about the ethics of people making a living the best way they can in a world that makes it so fucking hard to just exist and feel okay. As if there aren't bigger, more deadly challenges right in front of us. Why? Why are we doing this? We have to do better. There's so many people, our planet, the animals, the plants, the oceans, all of that depends on us doing better. Let's do better. It starts with us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Um, but most importantly, tell a friend and tell them to stop harassing resellers on TikTok too while you're at it. Just like get, you know, it's just like one more second of talking, right? Maybe, maybe three to five. I don't know. Um, if you'd like to support my work financially, which I would love, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close wars podcast, or you can check out some of the links in my bio on Instagram where you will find this podcast at at close source podcast. Please, if you are loving this conversation about secondhand, uh, go check out my other podcast, The Department, where we are working on a corresponding series about the history of secondhand clothing as a social, fashion, and retail trend. Believe it or not, this is not the first time this has been a big conversation. We're taking this week off from the department because, honestly, I'm just like really overworked right now. But there are already three episodes out there for you to listen to. So go go check those out. Lastly, thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.